Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with the anti-Semitism furore for the Labour Party. This is in the Independent. Labour anti-Semitism morale was created by Israel to distract from atrocities trade union boss suggests. Absolutely, it was. More specifically, revisionist Zionism. The article says, The leader of one of Britain's main trade unions has suggested that Israel created the anti-Semitism morale that has engulfed Labour over the summer. March Sirotka, who leads the Public and Commercial Services Union and is a staunch supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, told a fringe event at the Trade Union Congress conference that the Jewish state could have created a story that does not exist in order to distract attention from atrocities he said it has committed. His comments were condemned by anti-Semitism campaigners who said Mr Sirotka should resign over the despicable claims. Never mind the fact that they're true. The comments risk reigniting the row over claims of anti-Jewish abuse in Labour which has died down in recent days after the party's ruling executive backed pressure to adopt an internationally recognised definition of anti-Semitism. Which basically covers criticism of Israel and the Israeli regime's actions, not least its genocide against the Palestinians. The article goes on. Speaking at an event organised by the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, Mr Sirotka said he deplored anti-Semitism but claimed accusations against Mr Corbyn were the result of something sinister going on. Well, what's going on is that revisionist Zionist groups are claiming a false rise in anti-Semitism from people who are talking about Israel for the racist apartheid state that it really is and branding such comment racist and anti-Semitic and stopping such people having a platform or making it harder for them to have a platform and trying to destroy their career for reasons I explained in episode 10. The most racist philosophy on earth, revisionist Zionism, brands everyone else racist when they are simply stating the fact that revisionist Zionism and Israel is racist when it is. The most racist political philosophy on earth brands everyone else racist just for pointing out the simple fact that it is racist and that Israel is a racist state when it's exactly what it is. The article goes on. He told the event in Manchester, I think it is unfortunate that the Labour Party allowed a lot of this to drag on in a way that actually did not help anybody. In a year when Donald Trump has moved the US Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, I go into that by the way in episode 17. In a year when dozens of Palestinians including children were gunned down, unarmed innocent civilians by the Israeli military, in a year when the Americans are cutting off aid, isn't it a vile world when, instead of being on the front foot denouncing these atrocities, demanding an independent and sovereign state for the Palestinian people, we have had a summer of asking ourselves whether leading labour movement people are in any way anti-Semitic. He added, One of the best forms of trying to hide from the atrocities that you are committing is to go on the offensive and actually create a story that does not exist for people on this platform, the trade union movement, or I have to say for the leader of the Labour Party. Mr Corbyn has previously called Mr Sirotka his friend. The firebrand union leader was expelled by Labour in the 1990s for his membership of a left-wing group and banned from voting in the 2015 leadership contest because the party said he did not share its aims and values. He was allowed to rejoin after Mr Corbyn became leader. Mr Sirotka told trade union members in Manchester there had been the most systematic attempt to shut down all those advocating justice for the Palestinians in a way that should trouble all those who want to expose injustices. He added, and we fast forward to this year and the dominating headline has not been the actions of the Israeli state, it is whether we as a movement have any form of anti-Semitism in our attitude to Palestinians. Ewan Phillips, a spokesperson for Labour against anti-Semitism, said, Mark Savotka's speech is a stark illustration of how deeply embedded anti-Semitism is within the Labour movement. To intimate that the Israeli government is somehow responsible for the anti-Semitism crisis that has torn across the Labour Party this summer is a baseless lie. 
He added, callously dismisses the serious and legitimate concerns of the Jewish community while also drawing on anti-Semitic tropes to draw attention from what is a recognised issue of discrimination against Jews across the political left. The suggestion that there is a malevolent power manipulating British politics is as absurd as it is offensive. No, it's true. The quote goes on, With this speech, Mr. Savotka has brought the entire TUC into disrepute. It deserves widespread condemnation and he should resign as General Secretary of the PCS. Jennifer Gerber, Director of Labour Friends of Israel, said, Mr. Savotka's comments are despicable. There is a problem of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party because of anti-Semitism. Mr. Savotka also used his speech to pay tribute to Hugh Lanning, a former PSC Deputy General Secretary who now works for the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Speaking at the same event, Mr. Lanning said Israel was a racist state. It is! And claimed the row over anti-Semitism in Labour had, had a chilling effect. He said it's time to speak up and stand up for Palestine and the situation Mark was describing which has had this chilling effect across the whole trade union Labour movement. To loud applause, he added, I take the view that if Israel wants to have racist laws, if it wants to have roads that only some people can go on, to have different laws and education systems based on race, we shouldn't be frightened of calling it a racist state. If it acts and behaves like an apartheid state, we should call it an apartheid state and not be frightened of doing so. Mr. Lanning said the row over anti-Semitism was an opportunity to focus people's attention on Israel. Calling for boycott, divestment and sanctions against the Jewish state, you told trade union members we've got to shift the tipping point within the labour and trade union movement and you are the shock troops who are able to do this. One of the things that's happened over the summer is that Palestine has been brought into the political agenda probably more than it has been for a long time. We can take that as an opportunity, so what the people who wanted to keep us quiet end up doing is making us shout very loudly. I'll repeat that last line again. We can take that as an opportunity, so what the people who wanted to keep us quiet end up doing is making us shout very loudly. A PCS spokesperson said, Mark spoke at Palestine Solidarity Campaign's fringe event at the TUC, an organisation PCS is affiliated to. He made the point at the start of the meeting that we need to oppose anti-Semitism in society and within the labour movement, but we should not allow the issue of anti-Semitism to be used by people who are attempting to silence Palestinian voices as they legitimately struggle for their rights in a sovereign state. Labour declined to comment. There's a surprise. Well, Mark Savotka is talking, even though he won't necessarily realise it, about revisionist Zionist groups like the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, the various Friends of Israel groups and the Anti-Defamation League in Canada, who go around targeting and defaming anyone criticising the Israeli regime and its ongoing genocide of the Palestinian people at the hands of the Israeli army. Revisionist Zionist groups who scare venues into cancelling presentations of people speaking about Israel and maybe even about revisionist Zionism and the role it plays in influencing the foreign policy of the West and in one example a police counter-terrorism officer and a council anti-extremist coordinator were enlisted and emails exist to prove this to pressure a venue into cancelling an event after the venue was originally going to hold the event even in the face of the lies about the speaker of the event by the revisionist Zionists who originally tried to get it cancelled this is where we are now any criticism has to be targeted at source, and I go into why that is in episode 10 and explain why it's happening. The reason we're hearing about the increase in anti-Semitism in the UK is because more and more people are asking questions and criticising the Israeli regime's actions, not least against the Palestinians, and that's labelled as anti-Semitic, when it's just legitimate questioning and criticism of Israel. But the point is about Jeremy Corbyn. If Corbyn was claimed to have been attacking... The point is about Jeremy Corbyn, and I said the same last week. If Corbyn was claimed to have been attacking any other minority, there wouldn't be such a coordinated attempt to get him to resign and to attack his party. 
It's the revision of Zionist secret society network protecting the interests of Israel that's the reason it's happening in such a coordinated way and on the level of law enforcement and government. If Corbyn was attacking any other minority or country, or was claimed to have been doing so, then there would be a fraction of the fury that we've seen. But because it's Israel and revisionist Zionism, because they claim that Corbyn's party is anti-Semitic, and because they claim that he's not doing enough to root out anti-Semitism, and because of all the pressure put on his party to adopt the definition of anti-Semitism that suits the revisionist Zionists and Israel, then we've seen all the fuss that we've seen about it. And the truth is the truth. And if Israel and these Zionist groups don't like it, then stop the genocide, stop being an apartheid state, stop influencing foreign policy in the West, stop attacking anyone who questions or criticizes the regime. And then maybe people might start seeing Israel differently. Until then, those of us who are not going to be stopped just by concern of being called racist, are going to continue talking about Israel for the racist apartheid state that it is. The next subject is Swedish elections and why I'm focusing on the Swedish elections will become clear shortly. This is in The Guardian. Sweden election. Far right makes gains as main blocks deadlocked. Sweden faces a protracted period of political uncertainty after an election that left the two main parliamentary blocs tied, but well short of a majority, and the far-right Sweden Democrats promising to wield real influence in Parliament despite making more modest gains than many have predicted. The populist anti-immigrant party won 17.6% of the vote according to preliminary official results, well up on the 12.9% it scored in 2014, but far below the 25-plus percent some polls were predicted earlier in the summer. It looked highly likely, however, to have a significant role in policy making. The governing Social Democrats, led by Prime Minister Stefan Löfven, maintained their record of finishing first in every election since 1917, but saw their score for 28.4%, the lowest first century while the main centre-right opposition moderate party also slipped at 19.8%. On a broadly favourable night for the smaller parties, the ex-communist left and the centre-right, centre and Christian Democrat parties all advanced. Crucially for the centre-left's chances of forming a government, the Green Party scraped over the threshold for parliamentary representation with 4.4%. But the new government, which could now take weeks to form, will need either cross-block alliances between centre-right and centre-left parties, or an accommodation with the Sweden Democrats, long shunned by all other parties because of their extremist roots, to pass legislation, potentially giving the populists a say in policy. With the centre-left bloc on 40.6% of the vote and the centre-right on 40.2%, analysts predict long and complicated negotiations will now be needed to build a majority, or more likely a minority, that will not easily be sunk. This looks difficult on the left, where any coalition would need to include the ex-communist left, effectively excluding cooperation from the centre-right. Many observers therefore see the moderate party leader Ulf Christensen, who on Sunday night called for Lofton to resign, seeking to form a minority centre-right administration, possibly in coalition with the Christian Democrats and with implicit ad hoc parliamentary support from the Sweden Democrats. This would give the populist party the opportunity to influence policy, particularly on immigration, in exchange for votes. Lofton said he would not be resigning and urged cross-block cooperation. The Sweden Democrats can never and will never offer anything that will help society. They will only increase division and hate. The mainstream parties now had a moral responsibility to form a government, he said. Addressing supporters on Sunday night, the Sweden Democrats leader, Jimmy Ackerson, said the 63 seats it would have in the 349-seat Riksdag represented victory. No one could take that away from us, he says. 
He said he was interested in cooperating with the other parties and wanted to tell the moderates in particular how to govern the country. We strengthen our kingmaker role. We will have an immense influence over what happens in Sweden in the coming weeks, months, years. The article goes on. Both the smaller liberal and centre parties in the moderates' current centre-right alliance are fiercely opposed to any normalisation of relations with the populists, as are all the parties on the left. The election was Sweden's first since the government allowed 163,000 migrants into the country, the most per capita of any European nation, during Europe's 2015 migration crisis, polarising the nation's 7.3 million voters and magnifying popular concern about a welfare system many felt was already under strain. Long waits for operations, shortages of doctors and teachers and a police force that has had difficulties dealing with a spate of gangland shootings and grenade attacks, often in deprived areas with high concentrations of immigrants, have all shaken faith in Sweden's prized model of generous welfare and inclusiveness. The often antagonistic campaign was largely dominated by themes of immigration, integration and welfare, with the Sweden Democrats repeatedly presenting the vote as a straight choice between immigration and welfare spending. This government we have had have prioritised during these four years asylum seekers, Jimmy Akers and the far-right party's leader, told his final election rally this weekend. Sweden needs breathing space. We need tight, responsible immigration policies. The article goes on. Casting his ballot in Stockholm on Sunday, Lofton, whose government radically tightened immigration laws in 2015, also described the vote as a referendum about our welfare. But he said it is also about decency, about a decent democracy and about not letting the Sweden Democrats, an extremist party, a racist party, get any influence in the government. That's what goes on. Far-right parties have made significant gains at the expense of the political mainstream across Western Europe in recent years in the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis and the 2015 refugee crisis and are now in government in Italy, Austria, Norway and Finland. Traditional parties have failed to respond to the sense of discontent that exists, said Magnus Blomgren of Umea University. That discontent maybe isn't directly related to unemployment or the economy, but simply a loss of faith in the political system. Sweden isn't alone in this. Well, we're looking here at the hijacking of the traditional left. It's a sleight of hand. It's a mind game because the foundation of global control, suppression and manipulation is a mind game because there's too few in full knowledge ultimately behind the manipulation of the true nature of world events and changes in society and how everything connects together, the elite, and then there's billions subject to the manipulation and control, the people. So it has to be achieved through constant deception and limitation of perception. I don't buy into the political spectrum myself. As I've said before, government is a spectrum in itself that ranges from manipulated ignorance and genuine desire to psychopathic conscious manipulation and actions like Tony Blair, Cameron, Obama, Trump, etc. In terms of the latter, but the mind game is that the traditional left, which did have liberal values, is now being conflated with the new left, which claims to be liberal but is the exact opposite. But the trick is that because those progressives and PC stormtroopers are calling for what the elite wants without realising it, because they claim to be liberal when they're on the left, therefore anyone challenging what they're about must by definition be on the right. And the more you call for it, the more on the right you are. But the trick is, because most people see left as good and right as bad, then you can call people off the right or far right to discredit what they're saying. And because many people don't take the time to find out what someone's actually saying, you can discredit those who are saying things you don't want people hearing or reading or knowing. It's the old trick. Tap the messenger, discredit the message, and so people only hear and read and think they know what you want them to think. Also, you can persuade people that the fake liberal left is actually what they should be supporting because the opposite is the right or the far right. But not all far right is violent, racist and bigoted. But the mind game is to persuade us that it is just because it's been called the far right. The new 
anti-liberal left are the progressives and PC stormtroopers I've talked about before. And when you look at the dictionary definition of liberal, they're anything but liberal. Genuine liberals believe in equality, while the fake liberals have the PC pyramid I talk about in episodes 13 and 15. Genuine liberals believe in protecting rights, while the fake liberals are calling for them to be taken away. Genuine liberals believe in freedom of speech and freedom of expression and a platform for all to express their views, while the fake liberals clearly don't. Genuine liberals believe in gender equality and race equality, while the fake liberals believe in, for example, women taking over from men under the guise of seeking equality between the sexes with feminism. Not that every feminist has that ambition, but overall that's what we're looking at. If you take an overview, uh, they believe in gender and race inequality because of the PC pyramid. What we're seeing is a merging of genuine liberal values with fake liberal values by claiming both want the same thing when the fake liberals actually want the opposite. But it's a mind game. This rise in populism is a reaction against the fake liberals because for so long people have had their voices silenced by being called racist or politically incorrect by the progressives and PC stormtroopers. The fake liberals not least in relation to pointing out the obvious effects of mass immigration. And one of these effects is special treatment of migrants by the authorities. And I talk about that more in episode 27 and how the fake liberal progressives have caused it. But for so long people have been silenced or called racist and bigots. This is what happened with the Brexit debate. Because one of the main reasons people voted for Brexit was they were fed up with the incessant migration caused to a large extent by the West's own foreign policy agenda. But there's also some psychopathic opportunists, many of them single men, not migrants fleeing war-torn or invasion-torn, more accurately, cities and countries, but opportunists among the number of migrants which the fake liberal progressives refuse to acknowledge. And people who realise this simple fact had an opportunity at last to respond to that which they'd been silenced or attacked for pointing out for so long. And in this way, Brexit was a populist vote. Another reason populism is becoming so popular is that people are fed up with the old political paradigm and they want a politics which reflects the will of the people. And we're seeing people wanting to vote for nationalist, anti-immigration policy political candidates. And while no political leader is not going to advance the elite's agenda in some way or another, we're starting to see a politics closer to the concerns of the population. However, Donald Trump was also a populist vote because of what people in their misguided perception believe Trump stands for. So not every populist candidate is for the people. Trump is one of the most revisionist Zionist presidents that America's ever had for a start. We're seeing a rebranding of politics, but not ultimately for the people. We need to be streetwise to this because while it may appear that because populism is a response to the fake liberals in favour of destroying freedom while claiming to stand for it, we run the risk of another black and white trap again. I mentioned just now the black and white trap of left, good, right, bad, and why it's a trap, because the traditional left has been hijacked by the fake liberal left. And we run the risk of another black and white trap, because, as I said, not every populist candidate is for the people, even though they may appear to be, and this rebranding of politics is actually on behalf of the elite because people were starting to see that voting, in other words, political leaders and government are more or less all the same. So there needed to be a rebranding. You've got to keep people interested. So it started with Obama, the first black president, and it was hailed as a wonderful breakthrough for black people and the idea that because it was believed that America would never have a black president, and now they do at that time, is a wonderful change in racial attitudes in America over the decades. That was the perception, that was the mind game but it was fundamentally flawed 
this perception because Obama didn't come out of nowhere. People like Zbigniew new Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor were involved with Obama back in the 80s. And Obama represented the white, mostly, elite and those around him who were white, not black people in America. His allegiance was with the elite as presidents' allegiances are. And what we saw with Obama was the repetition of key words, change, hope, and something to believe in. Now, of course, we hear the word change all the time in politics because the way the system is structured, the system of society. At any point, people are not happy in the sense of being content. So anyone coming along offering change, that immediately speaks to people's discontent. But with Obama, it was on another level. And because at no point did Obama go into specifics about what those words meant, then people projected onto him what those words meant to them. And so he became all things to all people. I've heard Obama during the election campaign described as a blank screen, and that's perfect, a blank screen on which people projected their version of what those key words meant to them, of what change, hope, something to believe in meant to them. And that's the mind game which got him elected. And then we had this recent election between Trump and Clinton where the mind game was an outsider against the first woman president, which Clinton would have been had she been elected. But Trump's not an outsider. He's one of the most revisionist Zionist presidents America's ever had for a start. And since 1980, with Reagan and Bush, when Bush was the vice president, but in truth the president, especially towards the end of Reagan's reign, to 2009 when Obama came in, a Bush or a Clinton was in the presidency. And in 2016, we had the election between Trump and Hillary Clinton. And had Clinton won, that would have been another Clinton in power for four or eight years in this ongoing exchange of power between Bush and Clinton. And Clinton would be far worse than Trump. And the question that needs to be asked is how, in a country of 320 plus million people, in the land where anyone can become president, the land of the free, can we have had this process since 1980, which I've just described, and a choice, with the word choice in inverted commas, between Trump and Clinton? How can that happen? Because politics is not there to serve the people, it's there to serve the elite. And the more I look at it, the more it seems Trump was the one the elite wanted. Trump will bring about far more divide and rule and conflict than Clinton ever would with these fake liberals, the progressive PC stormtroopers and the social justice warriors, the anti-Trump fake liberals and the pro-Trump supporters fighting each other while being diverted away from the real issues which are happening beyond their focus. Trump is an exercise in division, diversion, conflict and he will do whatever Israel says. In terms of Sweden, this is a country that has been destroyed because of these fake liberals for reasons I explained in episode 27, because of the effects of unchecked mass migration in that country. And so naturally people want a politics which reflects that fact and is willing to address it. And that's why we're seeing the rise of the far right in Sweden. In other words, those with the opposite view to the fake liberal left. We're seeing this rise because of the people of Sweden's natural response to unchecked migration in their country, which the fake liberal left supports. And then these fake liberal progressives have the nerve to complain about a politics they don't like when they've caused it in the first place. We're in a time now where people are starting to see that politics does not represent the people and that society is not about the people, it's about those who rule the people. And so it's very encouraging, but we need to be streetwise as well, or we'll end up falling for it all over again believing that just because someone is a populist candidate they should be voted for. 
Injustice migration can be seen as a reason to vote for populist candidates who come from a nationalistic anti-migration perspective. Migration can also be used, and I'm not saying it will be, but it can also be used as a ploy to get political candidates into power. And then it's more of the same again, as the elite's agenda continues. So it's very encouraging, but we need to be streetwise. The next subject is petrol prices. This is in the Daily Mail. How much more can drivers take? Petrol prices hit four-year high and cost of fuel rises for 10th week in a row. Now Chancellor hints at £160 a year fuel tax rate on all of us. A row broke out of her fuel duty yesterday after petrol prices hit a four-year high. Chancellor Philip Hammond suggested on Tuesday that an eight-year freeze in the levy was coming to an end, but motoring groups warned such a move would harm businesses, hit families and damage Conservative Party fortunes. They said drivers were already paying £40 billion in taxes for third world roads and they pointed out that pump prices have risen for 10 weeks in a row. And he's taught Mr Hammond who needs £20 billion for an NHS spending boost can unveil a duty rise in his autumn budget. The freeze has been saving the typical motorist around £160 a year. With the oil price surging, it hit a 2018 high of $80 a barrel yesterday. The cost of unleaded has risen to £1.30 a litre and £1.34 for diesel. Filling up the average tank now costs more than £70 the most since July 2014 and up to £18 more than just two years ago. Howard Cox, founder of Fairfuel UK, claimed a duty hike would be seen as opportunism from an out-of-touch chancellor. He added that Mr Hammond is playing Russian roulette with his party's electoral fortunes by threatening a duty hike on hard-pressed drivers. Steve Gooding of the RIC Foundation said it wasn't just a long hot summer for drivers, it was also an expensive one with pump prices rising relentlessly to the four-year high we see today. The last thing tens of millions of drivers need is a jump in fuel duty, a hike won't just hit motorists. Fuel is a huge expense for many businesses, whether they run cars, vans or lorries, and any additional cost will ultimately be passed on to consumers. Whether you drive or not, you will pay the price as goods and services become increasingly dear. The article goes on. Fuel duty is frozen since 2011 at 57.95p per litre for both petrol and diesel. In the last budget, Mr Hammer said the decision to freeze it would save drivers £160 a year on average. Fuel duty raised almost £28 billion during the 2017 to 2018 tax year, according to official estimates. Mr Hammond said the freeze would cost the exchequer around £46 billion, but campaigners have pointed out that motorists in Britain were still among the most heavily taxed in the world. At £1.30 a litre for unleaded, 57.95p goes on fuel duty and around 22p on VAT, a total of 80p. Drivers must also pay road tax, vehicle excise duty as well as insurance premium tax. Motoring journalist and broadcaster Quentin Wilson said UK drivers already pay £40 billion a year in motoring taxes for shocking third world roads. Raising fuel duty with the Brexit, oil at close to $80 and slow consumer spending is arrogant and reckless in a way to lose the next election. Why doesn't Westminster understand how important the road economy is to all our lives? The article goes on. A Treasury study in 2014 concluded that freezing fuel duty helped the economy to the extent of almost offsetting the tax loss to the exchequer. Tory MP Robert Halfin said any tax hikes on drivers will impact badly on business, the economy and push-up prices we all pay in the shops. Pump prices are already rising rapidly now, being 15p up on last year. A fuel duty hit will slow growth and cripple many small businesses. We must keep the freeze in this levy for the whole of this parliament. Former minister warned plenty of Tory MPs would block a duty hike if it was tabled in the budget. He's also thought that DUP, which keeps the Conservatives in power, would not support a rise. Before the last budget, six of the party's 10 MPs wrote to the Chancellor urging him to keep the fuel duty freeze. Since April, the cost of filling up a typical family car that runs on unleaded or diesel has risen by around £6. The rising cost of fuel has become one of the main household expenses that has been driving up the cost of living. Last night, the price of oil was approaching a four-year high. Well, motoring groups are right to warn against such a move and well done to them for raising these concerns. But when it comes to what they're warning about happening in terms of the problems it will cause for drivers and businesses, they miss the point that that is the point. 
the effect on small businesses and families, drivers, that's exactly the idea because the agenda, well beyond the level of Westminster, we're talking about the elite here, as ever. The agenda is to get rid of small businesses and to create the Hunger Games Society, both of which this contributes to achieving and that's why it's happening. I talk about the Hunger Games Society in episode 4 if you've not heard me say that before. And where it says in the article, why doesn't Westminster understand how important the road economy is to all our lives? Ultimately, not everybody in Westminster, but ultimately it does, and that's why it's happening. The government is not there ultimately to serve the people, it's there to introduce the elite's agenda. That's why government exists. Now, of course, there are people within government at different levels of knowledge of why things are happening, but government is there to introduce the elite's agenda. Another benefit to the agenda of this recent price hike is that it will encourage more people to take public transport, thus saving them fuel and other expenses, as all they'll have to pay for is the journey. And the agenda is for an end to private transport. The agenda is for public transport, especially high-speed underground rail travel, to be the means of travel in the Hunger Games society. The more you can increase expenses on private travel, the more you incentivize people to take public transport. The reason the agenda is for public transport, especially high-speed underground rail travel, to be the main means of travel is because then it can be dictated who has access and who doesn't. And I've talked before about how the agenda is for everything to be privatised and corporatised it dictate access. Because unless you keep authority happy doing the job you're told you have to do in the Hunger Games society, where everyone lives in absolute poverty except the elite, with the only other bracket in society being a brutal psychopathic law enforcement, and even then they'll eventually be redundant when robots take their place. But in the Hunger Games society where everyone is in poverty, dependent on the job they're assigned, in the sector they're assigned to live in. Because as I've said before, the agenda is for countries to be broken up into regions. So if you don't do the job you're assigned in the sector you're assigned to live in, you won't have access to money or anything else. Driverless cars are also part of the agenda for travel. Because driverless cars will be programmed to take you nowhere authority doesn't want you to go or allow you to go. And also, you'll be going nowhere if you don't keep authority happy. It's all about control. The next subject is Amazon. This is in the mirror. Amazon taps leeches blasted by Archbishop of Canterbury as he slams web giant for not paying fair share. Justin Welby pulled no punches today as he laid into Amazon over its tax affairs, accusing it of denying funds to health, education and defence. In a hard-hitting, unprecedented speech, the Archbishop of Canterbury labelled the online giant leeches and slammed its pay-for-hard-pressed staff, which he said needed propping up with benefits. And Mr. Welby also ripped into the gig economy, the rise of food banks under the tourism brand a universal credit of failure. Amazon insisted tonight it paid all the tax required. But the Mirror told last month how it declared its lowest UK corporation tax bill in five years. Mr. Welby told the TUC Congress in Manchester, not paying taxes speaks of the absence of commitment to our shared humanity, to solidarity and justice. If you earn money from a community, you should pay your share of tax to that community. When vast companies like Amazon and other online traders can get away with paying almost nothing in tax, there is something wrong with the tax system. They don't pay a real living wage, so the taxpayer must support their workers with benefits. And having leached off the taxpayer, once they don't pay for our defence, for security, for stability, for justice, health, equality, education. Then they complain of an undertrained workforce. From the education they have not paid for and pay almost nothing for apprenticeships. Former oil firm executive Mr. Welby, who also mocked the demise of payday lenders Wonga, then turned his attention to the poverty raging through Britain. He demanded the rollout of universal credit be halted, insisting it has left people relying on benefits much worse off. And the 62-year-old said the gig economy, zero-hours contracts is nothing new. It is simply the reincarnation of an ancient... And the 62-year-old said this 
and the 62-year-old said the gig economy, zero-hours contracts is nothing new, it is simply the reincarnation of an ancient evil. Let us not delude ourselves into thinking the gig economy is the only reincarnation of oppression of the vulnerable and employment. Pensions are one example of the profit motive leading to the weakest being given the most risk and the strongest the most protection. In these areas, and in employment rights, and in many others, we see where inequality and just in these areas and in employment rights and in many others we see where inequality and injustice seem entrenched it leads to instability in our society divisions between peoples and vulnerability to the populism that stirs hatred between ethnicities and religious groups the rise of ancient demons of racism anti-semitism islamophobia and xenophobia well some of it will be hatred some of it will be making points and asking questions the PC stormtroopers and authority in general don't want people asking and saying so it's called Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, racism etc because it's a way of censoring it or trying to discredit it. On payday loans he added five years ago I said to the chief executive of Wonga I wanted credit unions to compete him out of business when well, he's gone Today I dream that governments put church-run food banks out of business. I dream of empty night shelters. I dream of debt-advised charities without clients. Mr. Welby praised trade unions for their efforts to defend workers' rights and urged more people, including Church of England priests, to join. Well, church-run food banks, empty night shelters, debt-advised charities without clients, they're all great things, but society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And until people understand that and address that fact, nothing's going to change. How can it? Mr. Welby praised trade unions for their efforts to defend workers' rights and urged more people, including Church of England priests, to join. He said, Great and historic advances were won over this last century and a half by the determination and vision of working men and women in trade unions. Mr. Welby's outspoken address, which won a standing ovation, was the first to the TUC since George Carey's in 1997. GMB General Secretary Tim Roach backed his attack on Amazon. He said the Archbishop's speech shows the greed and selfishness of corporate giants who leech off the taxpayer, keep their staff permanently insecure, exercise no level of responsibility to the communities they operate in. It's a matter for all of us. The Archbishop put himself squarely on the side of working people. New accounts emerged today showing Amazon paid £49 million pound tax on its £22 billion pound European revenue. That is just 0.02%. But Amazon insisted we pay all taxes required in the UK and every country where we operate. Amazon has created more than 25,000 good jobs with good pay and benefits across Britain and we are proud of the work they do on behalf of customers every day. All permanent Amazon Fulfillment Centre employees are given stock grants which over the last five years were equal to £1,000 or more per year per person. Employees are offered a comprehensive benefits package. How they pull it off? The Mirror revealed in August that Amazon had declared its lowest tax bill in five years as it was accused of killing the high street. The online retailer paid just £4.6 million tax last year, just over 6% on its profits of £72 million. It was founded in 1994 by Jeff Bezos, who quit his high-flying Wall Street job to set up the website. Originally launching as the world's largest bookstore, Amazon gradually grew into the website we know today, which delivers pretty much anything to customer stores, sometimes in a matter of hours. Alongside their retail arm, Amazon has developed and acquired a raft of hugely successful internet-related products. In 2007, they launched the Kindle e-book reader, which would go on to sell an estimated 6 million devices by 2010. 
By January the following year, Amazon announced digital books were outselling their print counterparts for the first time. And in 2014, they first launched the Amazon Echo, featuring virtual assistant Alexa, which quickly dominated the smart speaker market. Amazon also owns the rapidly growing audio bookstore Audible, as well as Amazon Web Services, a platform which hosts data for about 5% of all websites in the world. By 2013, Amazon made Bezos a billionaire, and he paid $250 million to buy the Washington Post, installing himself as the first media mogul of the digital age. Grim Working Life Servicing the Machine I worked undercover for five weeks at Amazon's brand new warehouse in Tilbury, Essex last year. We exposed the grim reality for workers in the lead up to Black Friday and Christmas. My colleagues, exhausted by impossible targets, fell asleep on their feet. Campaign and set conditions were like a Victorian workhouse. I struggled to disagree. At every turn, it felt like the human staff were reduced to livestock existing only to service Amazon's machines. The repetitive, monotonous work turned people into zombies. Anybody who could leave did, but many had no option and had to carry on as slaves to the company. Amazon told us, Amazon provides a safe and positive workplace with competitive pay and benefits. We are proud to have created thousands of permanent roles. Targets are based on previous performance by workers. Well, Amazon, I remember reading, have said that they've improved their working conditions, but we've only got their word for that. And whatever Amazon pays or doesn't pay, in tax or to anything else. The fact remains that, as I've said before, it's a monster. And you look at Amazon, and it started off as a book publisher. It's now refusing to publish certain books. And at the moment, that's not such a problem because there are many other publishers out there. But when Amazon has the monopoly these giant corporations are designed to have, which I talk about in episode 32, and in the end, super corporations, after mergers between giant corporations, creating the equivalent of Orwell's Ministries in 1984, as I talk about in episode 30, with the merger between Monsanto and Bayer, for example, then in that situation it will be a problem because book publishing, like everything else, will be corporatized, not least through Amazon. And only books which authority has no problem with people reading, in the end, digital books only, will be published. Kindle books, digital books, which Amazon's also involved with, are all part of the agenda to replace paper books with physical books and when you have only digital books then they can be edited or deleted and this is the memory hole in Orwell's 1984. Google is another version of the memory hole with the way that it's using algorithms to suppress certain search results or even omitting certain results altogether and at the moment it says it's doing it because of this law or that law or this reason or that reason but eventually where it's going and I'm not saying this is going to happen, I'm just saying this, but where it's going, I say, could be to encompass more and more search results to omit until nothing exists, which that which controls Google doesn't want people to see. Amazon is also pushing the AI agenda with its Alexa AI assistant, which is merging the human mind with artificial intelligence, even just on the level of getting people used to the idea of AI doing simple tasks for them and people talking to AI. It's all preparation for the end game with the AI technological agenda, which I talk about considerably in episode 11. Amazon has its own drones. Google are also working on drones for the Pentagon. Not a surprise because, as I talk about in episode 19, these Silicon Valley giants are fundamentally connected to the intelligence arena and the Pentagon, not least through its technological development arm DARPA. Google are also developing robots for law enforcement, which is what drones are designed to be law enforcement. I talk about the robots for law enforcement that Google is developing in episode 16 because Google, like Amazon, is a monster. Amazon is 
all part of the agenda for giant corporations to have a monopoly, super corporations in the end, which are simply vehicles to introduce the elite's agenda. I'll talk about that in episode 24. So, you look at all these different areas of Amazon's business, all these different areas it's involved in, and they all serve the elite's agenda. And that's not a surprise because, as I've said, giant corporations, especially major giant corporations, are simply vehicles to introduce the elite's agenda. Not necessarily all of them, but some of them definitely. And so, you put all this together, and paying or not paying enough tax is the least of the reasons to be wary of Amazon. Final subject is poverty. This is in The Guardian. A new study finds 4.5 million UK children living in poverty. More than 14 million people in a country of over 70 million, by the way, more than 14 million people, including 4.5 million children, are living below the breadline with more than half trapped in poverty for years, according to a new measure aimed at providing the most sophisticated analysis yet of a material disadvantage in the UK. The measure seeks to forge a fresh political consensus between left and right over how to define and trap poverty, with the aim of encouraging better targeted poverty interventions and making it easier to hold politicians to account. It finds poverty is especially prevalent in families with at least one disabled person, single parent families, and households where no one works or that are dependent for income on irregular or zero hours jobs. It was developed by the Social Metrics Commission, an independent body bringing together poverty specialists from across the political spectrum to devise a successor to the child poverty targets abolished as an official measure in 2015. The SMC's most significant innovation is to build core living costs such as rent and childcare into its poverty measure. This recognises that even a relatively comfortable income is no guarantee that people can meet basic material needs if it is eaten up by unavoidable weekly outgoings. It also looks at the depth and severity of disadvantage, concluding that 12% of the total UK population is in persistent poverty, meaning that they have spent all or most of the last four years below the breadline. Workless families and families that contain a disabled person are most likely to be stuck in poverty. There are significantly fewer over 65s in hardship compared with previous official property measures, 11% against 16%, reflecting not just the protection of pension values in recent years, but pensioners' lower living costs and higher levels of cash savings. SMC's analysis of official data finds those in hardship are more likely to have poor health and lack qualifications than those above the poverty line. But family relationships are equally strong at the side of the poverty line and the poor are significantly less likely than their wealthier counterparts to drink to excess or take illegal drugs. Overall, the total number of people in poverty are marginally higher than previous figures. For example, it finds 4.5 million, or about 33% of children, are in poverty as opposed to 4.1 million, 30%. But the SMC says numbers are less important than understanding the nature of poverty and taking action to improve the lives of the poor. We want to put poverty at the heart of government policy making and ensure that decisions that are made are genuinely made with the long-term interests of those in poverty in mind, the Commission's Chair Philippa Stroud said. The findings are likely to result in fresh scrutiny of the impact of austerity and labour market changes over the past few years, particularly the billions of pounds of cuts and freezes to welfare and disability benefits and the rise of insecure zero-hours work. The Commission hopes that the measure will also focus politicians' attention on tackling rising living costs such as rent, childcare and the extra cost of disability rather than to solely focus on raising incomes. The SMC sets the poverty line at 55% of the three-year median of total household resources as opposed to the previous threshold of 60% of median income. It says poverty is a relative concept best understood as the extent to which people have the resources to engage adequately in a life regarded as the norm in society. There was initial scepticism when the SMC was set up over two years ago, not least because Lady Stroud, formerly an advisor to the former Work and Pension Secretary Ian Duncan Smith, 
was regarded as a partisan figure because of her political links. She is chief executive of the Legatum Institute, a right-wing think tank. Other members include senior conservative figure Stefan Shakespeare, who was the founder of polling firm YouGov, and another former Duncan Smith advisor, Stephen Bryan, who helped design Universal Credit. Alex Burkhart, a former advisor to the Prime Minister Theresa May, left the Commission after being elected as a Tory MP in 2017. However, the Commission includes respected poverty experts from academia and from organisations such as the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Royal Statistical Society. The former Liberal Democrat MP David Laws is also a member. There has been broad acceptance of the SMC's findings among poverty campaigners who have been reassured by its rigour and independence. Both the JRF and IFS intend to use the new measure in their regular poverty analyses. The SMC is hopeful the government will adopt it as a formal measure. The UK as a whole has been left without an official measure of poverty since the Conservative government's controversial scrapping of Labour's child poverty targets, although the previous measure was retained in Scotland and Wales in Northern Ireland. Child Poverty Action Group Chief Executive Alison Garnham welcomed the new measure but said measurement alone would not improve life for struggling families. What we now need is for government to move on from its denial of the problem set targets for reducing and eradicating child poverty and implement policies to support low-income families, she said. Sam Royston, Director of Policy and Research at the Children's Society, said while he would welcome these changes to how poverty is measured being included in official statistics, Concrete action is needed to tackle the shameful scale of poverty among our children with all the damage it can do to their well-being, education and life chances. The IFS has predicted the number of children living in poverty will soar to a record 5.2 million over the next five years as government welfare cuts bite, more than reversing all the progress made over the past 20 years. A government spokesperson said measuring poverty is complex and this report offers further insight into that complexity and the additional measures that could be taken into consideration. The spokesperson cited reforms they said were helping people to progress into work and then progressing work as well as £90 billion a year spent on working age benefits and £54 billion a year on supporting disabled people and those with health conditions. They added, since 2010, this government has seen over 1,000 more people moving into work each and every day. The number of children living in workless households has fallen by over a third, whilst at the same time, 1 million people have been lifted out of absolute poverty, including 300,000 children. We know there is always more to do. We will consider closely the report's findings in full. Well, this is the Hunger Games Society again. Um, people would hear someone say that we're living in and are going deeper and deeper into a Hunger Games society and they might think that's ridiculous but when we've got 14 million people in this country alone according to these figures living in poverty over 20% of the population people might start to think again about dismissing the idea when you've got money system which is based on lending people non-existent money called credit and then charging them non-existent interest on it interest which is never created even as credit then is it any wonder that people end up in poverty? Because the same network ultimately controls the law system, like the City of London financial district in this country, which is fundamentally connected to the secret society network, especially the Knights Templar, and the same network ultimately controls the banks and political figures, then because of laws like fractional reserve lending, I've heard there's other laws as well, there may well be, I don't know, but fractional reserve lending allows banks to lend much more than they have on deposit. They only have to have 10%. So if you buy a car for £50,000 or whatever unit of exchange and the person selling the car goes to the bank and deposits the £50,000, now that bank can lend 90% more than they actually have on deposit. And if you followed one loan through the banking system, it's incredible the money, credit that can be created out of nothing and the money that can be made from doing that. And because of this system, it means there's never, ever anything like enough money 
credit in circulation to pay back all the loans and all the interest on the loan which doesn't even exist as credit. So the real world implications are that people losing their homes, businesses, land, vehicles, etc. is built into the system. Money is from the start because of this system a system of debt. The very system of trade and financial activity is a means of creating debt. And this is so because there's an agenda to create a structure in society, which I describe in episode four, for the reasons I describe in that episode. And there's a depopulation agenda because the world and therefore society is run by incredibly psychopathic people. That's putting it lightly. And one of the key traits of a psychopath is no empathy. And the people that run this world have no empathy and thus there are no limits for what they will do. It's just whatever works to advance their agenda. And by those who run this world, I don't mean the here today, gone tomorrow politicians and people in other government departments and organisations and government funded organisations. Many of those people are clueless and are just manipulated or not even manipulated, just clueless. Some know the agenda or at least their part in it, but many of them don't. They just play their part because of whatever reason they think they're doing it for. But those who run this world, the elite, they know how it all fits together and they will stop at nothing to advance their agenda, which fundamentally involves poverty, as I described in episode four. Economists talk about the money cycle of booms and busts as if it's some natural cycle. It's a fundamentally manipulated cycle because when you own the banking system, as this elite do globally, then you can create booms and busts at will. And that's what happens. It's just a matter of deciding how much money will be in circulation at any one point. And interest rates are lowered or raised depending on what suits at the time. And the loan criteria is changed to make it easier or harder to get a loan depending on what suits at the time. And in this way, you can create booms and busts at will. The method of money creation has to change if anything is going to change. People might think it's the government that creates money when in actual fact it's private banks owned by this elite creating credit out of fresh air. But what if it was government? What if governments printed their own money interest-free and circulated it among the population so it's purely a means of facilitating trade rather than being a means of control and suppression and limitation of choice? People say the problem is money and possessions, but it's not money, it's the system of money and how it screws people over in pursuit of possessions. It's not the possessions themselves, it's the system that's the problem. But with a fair monetary system, there would be no problem. The reason we don't have a fair monetary system is because of the reasons I described in episode 4 and because the world is run by psychopaths and it's yet another reminder that society is agenda driven, not people driven. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contesting connections, that's pay-per-view, more to come next week. Until then, goodbye.